tuning in with Care Asia, bringing human stories to life. Hey everyone, it's Emily, one of your hosts for tuning in by Krasia. I got to speak with Maria Lee, who is quite well known in Singapore. If you've ever attended a startup conference, you most likely would have seen her speak. She's a current chief operating officer for Tech in Asia, a digital media publication covering Asia's tech and startup scene. Prior to her role at TIA, she's worked at Apple in business ops and commercial strategy in Cupertino and in Singapore. In this podcast, we discussed how she's made her career decisions, coming from consulting into tech to media, and how on her first day at TIA, she was told to step up as a new COO. She gives valuable advice to those who are looking to figure out their own personal careers, as well as those who are stepping into new leadership roles in Southeast Asia. Thanks so much for you know inviting me to Tech in Asia. Very excited to learn more about you and what you do. So. I think most people know you as the COO of Tech in Asia. Is there something that you can tell us about yourself that most people don't know about? Sure, so I think it does have to be work-related, yeah? It can be anything related. Oh, okay, all right. So I think probably the thing that if you knew me in SF versus knowing me in Singapore is I actually love the outdoors and I'm happiest when I'm outside camping and hiking. So definitely in SF, it was a lot easier, of course. My husband and I would spend a lot of our weekends out in the various national parks, but I've done, like I've summited Mount Kilimanjaro, I've climbed Mount Rainier. I I love just like the intensity of being outdoors. And obviously that's not something I get to exercise a lot here in Singapore, but normally we would try to plan like two to three big hiking trips and try to go back more peaks. But yeah, obviously we're a little bit stuck right now. Have you been to the highest peak in Singapore? Good team. <laughs> I have been there, and we can talk about how disappointed I was when I got to the top. Same, yeah. Yeah. I got to the rock, and I was like, oh, this is it? I like, cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fine that Singapore doesn't have some, any major peaks, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for giving us that information. I think it's important to know someone as just beside work, right? Work is not always a person, or it never really always defines a specific person and what they do. But some things that I've noticed on your LinkedIn as well is just in general, how you've gone from consulting to tech and now you work in media and you also ended up in Nairobi, which is the capital of Kenya. So can you kind of explain how you chose to strategically navigate your own career choices and why you ended up in Nairobi in those two months? Yeah, sure. So I very much operate a lot of my life and then as a result my career decisions based on just like a series of hypotheses. So I think my overall guiding North Star is it's really important to me to make an impact in the local economies and I'm an ABC and a lot of this was influenced probably by the differences I saw in my own upbringing versus like that of my cousins back in China. And to me actually the biggest question is like how can local economies build and sustain really incredible jobs, incomes, and do it in a way that was really beneficial for the whatever locality or region that you're talking about or country level. And so I actually did my master of public policy. So I was like very pro public service coming out of college and I did my MPP and I was 
focused a lot on how we can do large-scale interventions. And so this is actually how I joined consulting. I joined Deloitte's Emerging Markets Group, which is very focused on advising international institutions and organizations. So like World Bank, IFC, USAID, on how to run like these like huge multi-year projects to help support national GDP growth within XYZ developing country. So I spent a lot of time with Deloitte as a result in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I worked on projects like across seven different countries. They were usually focused on exactly that, like building sustainable local economies. And so everything from like unblocking logistics and transport issues in Nigeria and rest of West Africa to supporting like smallholder farmers in East Africa. So those were the projects I was working on. And I think at some point I just came to realize that as well-intentioned as a lot of these large-scale programs are actually at the end of the day the most effective way to do this and the most sustainable way to support local economic growth is actually through the private sector and without you know like government intervention and public intervention is great and can jumpstart a lot but in order to make it sustainable you need to have the private sector hand to kind of like drive it forward and maintain a year after year even when the funding shrinks you know from USAID or World Bank for example and actually, it, the private sector obviously is a lot more nimble, moves more quickly. And then if you have a proven business model, can actually put even more money in mm-hmm. in the public sector. So anyways, so that's how I ended up going to Wharton is I kind of flipped from public sector to private sector and started to look at ways that businesses could actually help sustain and develop. I'm at Wharton, I think, I mean, I just had such a great experience in sub-Saharan Africa and I just really wanted to contribute. And I think... I still believe this now, East Africa and West Africa actually, their population and demographic numbers are off the charts. Mm-hmm. I think by like 2030, there will be more people living in Sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else. I don't know if that's <laughs> don't fact check me on that one. They're like huge population growth centers, right? Yeah. Which means they matter for anyone who cares about like economy and business. So when I was at Warren, I started getting really interested in like impact investing and like double bottom line and the ways that we can build like social, you know, doing good while doing well. So I ended up in Nairobi for my MBA summer internship with a VC fund. So I was working at a local bank, this local bank, it was a portfolio company. They had a really strong rural presence. And so, you know, a lot of times, especially, I mean, this is true actually across a lot of Southeast Asia, but where that rural strength, and especially if you're like a local bank, is where you can get a lot of deposits, you can start moving people into cashless systems, and it's where you can actually make a lot of like digital and financial transformation, mm-hmm. help encourage savings. I mean, you kind of, you start to like see like the incremental progress. And so that's what I was doing for the summer in Nairobi is helping them spin out new investment products for folks in rural Kenya. Yeah, so went back to school. I mean, I think at that point, real life started calling. Yeah. So I think it was like a conversation about, I was weighing my professional career options as well as my personal life options. So my now husband, he was West Coast at Berkeley, willing to move to Kenya if I asked him to do so. Romantic. Uh, But I think at the same time, there was, like I, I entered B-School under the understanding of like impact investing. And I actually think what happened through all my MBA internships is that as great as investing is, again, if you go back to private sector, like who is making the most impact is still the companies on the ground yeah. actually like doing the work. That is weirdly how I ended up at Apple, <laughs> which is I started to think about ways that companies, especially from the US, we're working to influence local supply chains and actually transfer tech and knowledge and skill sets 
over to developing countries and then how that would end up impacting, like leaving it, making a lasting impact within that local country, right? Mm -hmm. And so I ended up in Apple supply chain. It was a little bit random. They came to campus and like, I just kind of went in and interviewed. <laughs> and then, I mean, it was like one thing led to another, but my hypothesis going into Apple was actually like, of course, Apple is one of the best tech companies in the world. They're like super innovative. They run great supply chains. And then more importantly, they are responsible for a massive transfer of wealth from the US into their supply chain, which is obviously primarily based in Asia. And then, so I actually joined the company thinking that that was actually like a really interesting model when it comes down to developing like a local and sustainable economies. Because every time Apple contracts with a local factory, then an entire network, an entire cluster of additional support manufacturers and subcontractors and whatever kind of spring up mm -hmm. around that factory. And then that ends up having a fairly lasting impact. Mm -hmm. And over time, like you're bringing up engineers and you're training everything and everybody in the way of like this like world-class engineering thinking and you're kind of bringing it down to the local level. So that's actually how I ended up at Apple, which is really random, mm -hmm. but was something that I was pretty excited about. When I was at Apple, I mean, I was fairly lucky. Like it ended up being like my hypothesis was true. A lot of the work I was doing in the, my later years of Apple was actually expanding and diversifying their supply chain in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So moving out of, not moving out of China, but in addition to China, supplementing with some Southeast Asian manufacturing sites. So I was spending time in Vietnam, Malaysia, working on these projects. And then so there was this opportunity to kind of like be based in Southeast Asia and do the same sort of supply chain work. So I jumped at it, got the internal transfer to Singapore. And then after that, you know, I think at some point, I felt like I had a few different roles within the company. Apple's a wonderful company. It's a great experience. I was in the tech community. You know, I was like working in a tech company, but I wasn't connected to the tech community. And that was starting to grind on me a little bit. Again, I really believe in the transformational power of local enterprises and building up a local economy for what it to its strongest point possible. And honestly, I think a lot of the work that Tech in Asia is doing resonated with that. It's putting Southeast Asia's startup and tech community on a map. Obviously, the coverage that we do is in English, and so it kind of broadcasts out to the rest of the world what's happening here. I think this region's starting to get a little bit of attention now, but you know, like the company's been around for like 10 years, and eight years ago, nobody was listening. Five years ago, even nobody was really listening. Yeah. And then of course, you need coverage, you know, in order to kind of give the overall community like room and space to grow and breathe. And then also like connecting the people within the community here, right? So that they feel like they're actually part of something different and something big. Yeah, so I made the jump. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating how you kind of navigated your career choices and it all kind of made sense and clicked for you. Tech in Asia, definitely what you've mentioned, I think does a really good job of showing the tech and VC space to the world outside of Southeast Asia. And I actually read one of your articles that you wrote on Tech in Asia, like what you learned after your first year at Tech in Asia, right? And then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I also want to kind of just explore for your career transition, right? Like into working at Apple and then work, jumping into media and then suddenly becoming like COO of this like major media company. Like how was that transition for you? And I think in your article you said on the first day, they're like, hey, it's your time to step up and now you're COO. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> No, I mean, I tend to take challenges pretty head on yeah. and I don't overthink them. 
I mean, I overthink a lot of other things, but a challenge is a challenge. And the only way that I know how to break down a challenge is, or I know how to tackle a challenge is like breaking it down into individual parts and just like start moving. And so I would say like in terms of industry jumps, because you've mentioned consulting to tech to media, I definitely don't think about my career that way. I literally think about like each individual role. What am I trying to learn out of, learn from it? And then what experience, skill set, whatever would I like to gain from it? I don't ever really care about the industry. I don't even really care that much about the company itself. I really look at, I think, the mission of what I'll be working for. Do I believe in that? Of course, the people, and then specifically like my role and my contributions for it, which may explain why I have had a few different industries and roles. And then, but like that first day, so again, like I really believed in tech in Asia. The reason I actually found TIA is because I was a user. So I went to the, a TIA conference and I was like, oh my God, there's so much happening here in Southeast Asia's tech and startup community. Like I want to be part of it. I was reading TIA news. I mean, I knew I wanted to join a startup after my double corporate experience. Yeah. And I was using tech in Asia jobs to help like apply to different startups here. So when they posted and I just was like, oh, this sounds like, you know, like I obviously use the products. It's been helpful for me as an expat landing in Singapore and Southeast Asia. And so I just like kind of believed in the mission and obviously they were already connecting me to the local community. And so like just thought, why not, right? Like, let's try it. And then I will say like the first few months were a massive learning curve. I mean, I think everything changed so quickly. I went from, you know, even at Apple, like, you are given a ton of autonomy, honestly. And I was like signing multi-million dollar deals and on behalf of the company and making all these like big decisions that had so much money behind it. Yeah. But at the same time, if I really wanted to do anything super strategic, I still went through various levels of approval and like for lots of cross-functional conversations. And jumping to become one of the leaders of the company was a bit of a shock. It was weird. It felt like the safety net that you usually feel in a large corporate, which is like, no matter how badly I mess up, it can't be that bad. That safety net definitely got yanked away. And so I think the first few months were just like trying to orient myself in terms of understanding definitely the privilege of the position that I held and the responsibility that came with it and then adjusting myself and my expectations and how I worked and my tone and comms and everything, like adjusting every bit of myself yeah. in order to fill that leadership role, mm -hmm. yeah. In terms of adjustment, and I think I can relate to you on that sense because I'm also from the US. So I used to work with people who were older and white and engineers, and you had to be a certain type of person back in the US or in Silicon Valley. And then you come to Southeast Asia and you completely have to change the way you communicate and speak to people or even like emails. Are there notable differences that you've had to change for yourself in this role? Yeah, I mean, so I think, <laughs> I'm like, even of Americans, I'm super American. And I mean this in the sense of the way I communicate, the way I think, there's like the... Uh, it's very straightforward. Yeah, super straightforward. <laughs> I mean, and so if you think about it, like Americans tend to like over communicate, fairly aggressive in their communications. Even amongst Americans, I'm like a fairly aggressive <laughs> communicator. And then to be honest, like Apple is a fairly aggressive culture, right? Like yeah. the, as a culture, it really encourages like super independent thinking, lots of back and forth, like argumentation is fine, you know, as long as, of course, as long as you wrap it up and like move on at some point. Yeah. So those were some of the things that were bred into how I spoke and yeah. thought about things. And obviously that comes off really, really harshly. I mean, it's fine if I'm an IC at a company, right? I'm just like an individual contributor voicing my thoughts at a conference table, but it's really different, I think, from a leadership perspective. So I did have to learn how to just communicate in a way that 
wasn't so aggressive to be honest and yeah and so it's a shift of tone and then also like making room for other people to speak and I think that's probably one of the other things about leadership is like you have to you know like coming in super strong at the beginning of a meeting is just not I mean it's the switch from IC to leadership it's like you end up drowning out the other voices in the room I think especially here People do ask for honest feedback and I think it's actually hard for them to get honest feedback. And so you have to create space. What I learned at least is that you have to really create space for the rest of your team to legitimately be able to contribute and you have to hold that space for them. And if you're out there just like rambling, it doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good advice. And I think a lot of expats coming into Southeast Asia would appreciate that advice as well. In terms of career, though, for those who are maybe newly employed or new fresh graduates, what advice would you give them to kind of navigate their career choices? Yeah, I can only speak to what has worked for me, which is I don't sweat the big, like I don't sweat the long term stuff, right? Like I really think that every single choice you make should be a valid choice for something like three to five years. I actually more or less look at my career in like four year increments. And I just need to make sure that the next move I'm making, I'm really confident in. I also understand why I'm making that particular move. I do think, especially when you're younger and you're coming out of school, you're just like, okay, what's my passion going to be? What's my career going to be? What's my legacy going to be? And those questions are A, so ambiguous and large and stressful. And B, there's no answer to that, right? And so you can kind of like grind yourself down and stretch yourself out if you're starting with those. And so, like I said, I break down problems. And so I just try to break it down, which is like, okay, what would I like to do now, right? And so like when I was talking about my own career journey, I never was like, oh, I wanted to become CEO of a media company in Singapore. Like that would is just not possible for me to ever predict it. Yeah. All I can know is, who I was at that moment, what I wanted to try next, and try and find the role that would align to the two or top three top things that I want to solve for next. And that's actually the same thing. I mean, I will probably continue always using this model for my own career decisions and would advise other people who feel maybe stuck or overwhelmed by some of the bigness of their decisions to think similarly. Is like, you do need to start with like brutal honesty for yourself. Like you have to be really honest with yourself as to what you're looking for at that point in time. Your priorities will shift, right? Going from your 20s to your 30s to your 40s, what you prioritize was definitely shift. And that's okay and that's actually natural. So don't try to solve for like a 10 year problem now. Just understand where you are, what you're looking for and trying to find that role that best fits those priorities, right? And then don't sweat the other stuff because I don't have any romantic notions of like the perfect job or anything like that. And so when I moved from San Francisco to Singapore, I did it because I wanted the international experience. I actually wanted to kind of pull myself out of the bubble that is the valley. Yeah, the Silicon Valley. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you know, I still wanted, I mean, Singapore is not emerging markets by any means, but I did want to go to an up and coming region. And so Southeast Asia felt like a really good fit. The only way Apple would let me come out here or like the way that the company did it, I had to take a 40% pay cut. And my manager was like, are you sure you want to do this? My director was like, are you sure you want to do that? Like everyone was like, are you crazy? But I just knew that having that sort of international experience at that point in my career was more important to me than just like another paycheck in a slightly larger paycheck and to be honest when I made the jump from Apple to to tech in Asia I had to take another pay cut as well Mm -hmm. 
But again, I was moving up. I was getting the leadership experience at a startup that I really believed in versus feeling like I was a cog in a corporate machine. So I made that decision again. So actually within the span of a year and a half, probably, I took two massive pay cuts. And I don't feel sad about it at all because I'm getting all these other things that I knew I was optimizing for, which is hands-on leadership experience. Mission-wise, I honestly do believe in both Apple and Tech in Asia, but Tech in Asia's mission right now feels much more aligned to where I want to be. Yeah, and then I just don't worry about the rest. And I think that's what people need to understand. To kind of echo your thoughts on like the pay cuts and but finding a job that you're really aligned with, that's true. Like I do agree that sometimes there are payoffs that you take that are worth so much more than just a salary. And in the future, like I think that your experience in Southeast Asia will only continue to serve you for the more like positive way. We yeah. hope, right? Yeah. And honestly, if not, like if my hypothesis of joining TIA is wrong, like it doesn't really matter because when I made the decision and I was making the best decision based on the information that I had available to myself. And so like, you also have to be forgiving, right? Mm -hmm. And just appreciate each step that you take and not know what other doors it's going to open up. I can tell you I'm a much better, like everything, like employee, person, leader now than I was two years ago before I started this job. And like, I wouldn't have been able to have this growth experience if I just stayed at Apple milking it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, kind of not cruising, but if you, I, I think a lot of my friends do that too. They stay in Silicon Valley and they're like, I'm going to stay here for, you know, five, six, seven years and stay at the same company in the same role. And that's just their life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But no, I think that is definitely a perspective that not a lot of people have, right? I think it's good that we have you on this podcast so that you can open the minds of, of people who might think very differently. So thank you for sharing that. To kind of wrap up this chat, what is your forward-looking thoughts for 2021? Now that we put 2020 in the past. <laughs> like in general? Yeah, anything. <laughs> it can be like, oh, my thoughts for the industry, my thoughts for myself, like my thoughts for Singapore, anything. Hmm, interesting. So I would say like generally speaking, I kind of feel the same for myself versus for the company and for the industry is like, I appreciate, of course, that 2020 was kind of a shit show. <laughs> and I think a lot of the challenges of 2020 took people off guard. But I also think it's, well, two things. One is I don't write off 2020. I thought it was an incredibly challenging year. But I think with every challenge comes like amazing opportunities as well, growth opportunities, business opportunities, like whatever it is. And I hope people don't, it would be a waste of a year if you just wrote it off for yourself and for your company and your industry. So appreciate it for what it was mm -hmm. and how, you know, even the good and the bad and try to learn when you can from it. And I don't think that obviously just cause it's 2021, things are magically better as we've already seen really quickly. <laughs> and you know what, like it's not, things aren't gonna change that much or maybe not that soon. And so I think, and we've been saying this like at, at our various events or whatever from the very beginning, it's like you just, you know, for any startup, but for anybody as well, in order to survive, you just have to start making moves, right? And I do think a lot of 2020 people were like hunkered down because it was kind of scary. Everything was new. Everything was just overwhelming, to be honest. And I think that's fine. But this is the time to start plotting out your next move, your next decision, whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, and just learning to operate in order to make this new normal, very overused term, but to make it work for you. So yeah, I mean, I apply that kind of like, well, I try to apply it obviously in my personal life, but I try to apply it in the, with the company. And I definitely, a lot of the founders that I speak to, I think have already kind of embraced that mindset shift. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, well said. I think any movement forward is movement towards progress. Yeah. So. Indecision and inaction is what grinds you down at the end of the day. And an inability to get yourself out of your own situation, I think, is where people end up, is obviously where people end up feeling stuck. And so mm-hmm. try anything. You can make mistakes. It's totally fine from a company perspective, from a personal perspective, whatever. But that sort of movement, I think, is actually most invaluable and will serve you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, thank you, Maria. (laughs) Yeah, lots of great insight. I think before, I guess, last thing, is there anything you want to include or say anything about tech in Asia or (laughs) (laughs) last thoughts? (laughs) Oh man, wrap of thoughts. No, I mean, tech in Asia, I think very similar to Care Asia. Like, I think we both exist in this ecosystem because we believe in the overall ecosystem. I'm actually really excited, like industry-wise, I'm super excited about 2021. I think we are going to start seeing moves and like there's a lot of rumors flying around right now about what could be happening this year within the tech scene so our last year's our annual flagship conference the tia conference our theme was like 2020s like southeast asia's golden decade i actually am really much a firm believer in that right like i really think if you look at all the metrics if you look at the economic growth the demographic growth the like young population the mobile penetration rates like all these things are have really poised to make Southeast Asia, the next engine for economic growth on a global level. And I think it's so freaking cool to be part of and so honestly such a privilege, I think, to have like this like front row seat to everything that's going on. And I'm just so excited to see where the industry goes. I mean, I know that there are definitely still lots of challenges that we have to clear through, but and we can get into the specifics of like fundraising and exits and M&As and all those things. But like those challenges are real. But any solid startup ecosystem, any community would have these similar challenges. I think there are great people here, lots of awesome founders, lots of awesome startups. I'm just really excited to see like how this is all going to play out in the next two to three years. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited to see what 2021 brings us as well. Um, (laughs) But thank you so much, Maria, for taking the time to give your insight. I feel like a lot of people will find this very insightful just from a career perspective and also like an industry perspective. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Happy to do it.